Well, good morning, and uh, thank you to Bob for those words, and Simon for his prayer, and to you for being here. And I do want to say a special word of thanks about this topic, if I can wrestle this while I talk. Uh, thank you for your interest in these, these matters as it pertains to technology and to social media, the fact that you invited me uh, to talk about these things, especially with the kids yesterday, the teenagers, and then uh, allowing me to talk about these things with everybody today. I appreciate that. Uh, I find these things challenging, as Bob alluded to, and uh, important, necessary for me to think about, and I hope they'll be that way for you as well. One of the reasons why I wanted to continue to talk about these things today is because uh, as many of us in here that have an influence on young people, whether that's we're parents or we are grandparents or we are uncles or aunts, uh, it is as much our responsibility, if not more so, our responsibility to be aware of these things and to be active or proactive in guarding and in guiding our children as it pertains to technology and social media. And uh, there's lots of interesting articles that are coming out in the last 10 years or so. And we mentioned some of them yesterday. One that refers to Steve Jobs, who you know is the late founder of Apple. Uh, there are quotes from Tim Cook, the current uh, CEO of Apple, and many other tech executives that say that they severely limit the technology that their children use at home. And they have uh, restrictions that would seem, that do seem severe to their own kids and, and maybe would even seem severe to your kids as well. And one of the interesting things about those articles is that it points out that they do that not just because the kids have a problem, but they do that because adults have a problem. And they don't want their kids to grow up having the same problems with technology that they see around them and that they see in themselves. There's an interesting uh, passage in the book of Luke, a statement that Jesus makes in the context of the use of money and using money to advance the kingdom and to use money uh, with a spiritual vision. But I think this same statement applies to our use of technology and social media. He says, the sons of this age, that means the people of this world, are more shrewd, more clever, smarter, we might say, in relation to their own kind than are the sons of light. Sometimes people of the world get it before we do. Sometimes the people of the world are steps ahead of Christians in thinking through certain things and are wiser or more clever about how they use things in the world than Christians are. We can be uh, ignorant or naive about certain things. And I'm not exactly sure why that is. I have a couple theories. One is perhaps because we don't see it as a spiritual issue, and so we don't put forth the same effort to figure it out, to think about it. It's like, are there any Bible verses on social media? Well, no. So there must not be anything to talk about. Another reason, and I highlighted this with the kids yesterday as well. Sorry, if you're in high school or in college and you feel me referring to you as a kid is offensive, I'm sorry. I'm only about 15 or less years older than you, so... Uh, I'm a kid as well, so I put myself in the same category. But one of the things that we highlighted is the fact that the Bible does not just push us or instruct us to be morally right. We should always strive to be morally right, but the Bible pushes us to be wise as well. And we want to be wise people. We want to think about everything that we do in life. And as we think, use the Bible as our guide. And to let the Bible shape our minds and our hearts in the way that we approach anything that we use or that we interact with. 
And we do want to use wisdom. And part of using wisdom is, obviously, you may say the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and so we use the Word of God. But there is also wisdom to be found in our own experience, the things that we've noticed about ourselves, and the way that we use technology and social media. And there is wisdom to be gained from looking at others and research that has been done, and what other experts are saying about these things. So we've done some of that as well. And, of course, we want to be honest in the way that we think about this. Um, I hope everybody in here, in this room this morning, comes to this thinking, okay, I need to make some changes. There are things that I need to look at in my own heart, in my own life. These are not just lessons for young people. These are not just lessons for the world. These are not just lessons for other people. They are lessons for me, honestly. And I hope that you will take the same approach as well. We're going to get into the text of the Bible, and you're going to be opening your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We're going to start at the beginning this morning. But as you're turning there, I will take this opportunity to recommend a book. Uh, this is, to me, the one book. If you're going to read something, one thing about this topic, I would recommend this book. It's called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. Tony Reinke, R-E-I-N-K-E, if you can't see that there on the cover, is the man's name. And uh, I think... Tony Ranke in this book is doing exactly what you see on the left side of your screen. Okay? He's thinking about these things biblically. He's coming at this from a perspective of a Christian who is trying to please God, looking to the Bible as the ultimate source of truth and of wisdom. And he uses a lot of research, very comprehensive, in tackling these things wisely. And he forces, I think, the reader to be honest with themselves. And so if you want to learn more or to think more about these things, um, if there was one book to recommend, it would be this one. But we're going to start in the beginning of our Bibles this morning. We're going to look at uh, the creation and the creation of the world, the creation of humans, the purpose that God has given us. We're going to talk about what happened to that, what humans did in response to the good creation that God made for them, and then talk about the progression of sin leading up to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And the goal is to cast two visions, two visions of how we should think about technology, how we should think about human intelligence, human ingenuity. And these two visions are going to be essentially uh, opposing visions. And we're going to have to choose one or the other and, and look at ourselves and say, which of these two visions have I been living under and how can I change that if I'm not using the vision that God has laid out for me? Let's start in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We'll summarize quite a bit in this lesson and then read some important passages. But the work of God in Genesis chapter 1 is creation, of course. And what He does is He speaks, and through His Word, He brings order to chaos. The first three days of creation, the word that is used is to separate. God is separating light from darkness. He's separating the waters above from the waters beneath. He is gathering the waters in one place so that the dry land can appear. What God's doing in the first few days of creation may not be too different from what I do every few years when my garage is a mess. You go into your garage and you start putting things in its proper place. God is doing that in the first few days of creation. And then in the second part of creation, days four, five, and six, He is filling the world with good things. Everything is made after its kind. And of course, on the sixth day, God crowns His creation with the creation of humans, of man and woman. So let's read that passage in particular in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, where it says that God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. 
and let them, let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So a couple things to point out here. One is that God makes man and woman in his own image. There's a lot we could say about that. What we'll highlight here is that man has a connection to God that the rest of creation doesn't have. And man has uh, spiritual and mental and emotional faculties that the rest of creation doesn't have. And so man is set apart for his intelligence and for his rational ability, as well as, again, that spiritual connection that he has to God. And the second thing we'll note here is that God charges man to rule over his creation, to subdue and have dominion. This is royal language, the, the language used of what kings do. And so man is placed on the earth. And of course, man is under God's authority as the ultimate authority. But under God's authority, man is charged to be kings and queens, to rule in creation, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to have dominion. And of course, you can read, uh, you see this in these first two chapters and implications in the rest of Scripture, that humans were created to be benevolent kings, to steward what God had entrusted them with, to do good and to fill the earth with God's glory. So I want to ask you a couple questions as we pause here. I want to ask you what you think this would have looked like. It's a little bit hard to imagine. Imagine, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 playing out over a longer period of time. We don't know how long the time was, but Genesis chapter 3, all this gets ruined. But what would it have looked like if this had continued? What would it have looked like for humans to rule over the creation, to rule over the fish and the birds and the beasts? What would it have looked like for man to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it? And what would it have looked like for man to enjoy the things that God had given him from the earth? And the follow-up question is, what do you think it might have required man to come up with, to invent, to build, to create in order to accomplish these things? Again, it's a, it's, a, it's a hard thought experiment because we don't know what actually would have happened. But I think we can uh, assume with some certainty that for man to do these things, he would have had to use that intellect that God blessed him with. And he would have had to create some things, to invent some things, to build some things in order to fill uh, the role that God had given him. Okay, well, we come to Genesis chapter 2 and we learn a little bit more about the creation of man and woman. Let's read a little bit here in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, where it says that this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth, there was no shrub of the field yet in the earth, and there was no plant of the field yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to sight and good for food. And the tree of life also was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
couple interesting things to point out here. One is that you notice the text says that there was not yet uh, the sprouting, maybe the flourishing of plant life on the earth. And there's two reasons why these plants had not sprouted or achieved their fullness yet. One is because there had not been rain on the earth yet. But the other, he says, is there was no man to cultivate the ground. That to me is striking, that the author of Genesis says you know, there wasn't the fullness of plant life until man was there to work and to cultivate the ground. That was a necessary part of the growth and the flourishing of creation. And the second thing that's interesting here is that it, the way the text reads, it sounds like you have the whole earth, and then in the earth there's, a, uh, there's Eden, and then within Eden there's a garden. And so you think back to chapter 1 and this idea of, of the command to fill the earth. And you maybe, again, we're speculating perhaps a little bit here, but the picture seems to be that of an intention of expansion. That the garden uh, that's in Eden would then expand, and as man cultivated in that garden, it would grow to fill the earth with what God desired. Okay, we're a little bit on the shaky ground of speculation, so we'll move back on to the firm ground of what we know for certainty in the text. And when you come down to verse 15 of Genesis 2, we do have a very direct statement from God about what man's purpose is. So Genesis 2 verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. There are two purposes that man is given in this verse here, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Humans are made to cultivate. That word is sometimes translated to work or translated to serve. Humans were made to cultivate. We're going to call that man's productive purpose. Working together with God, as we saw earlier in the text, to bring forth fruitfulness from the earth, and fruitfulness that we read here in this verse that they were intended to enjoy, to eat of that fruit that was cultivated. They were, man was always, from the beginning, intended to be productive in cultivating the earth. But the second word, the second purpose used here is to keep, to cultivate it and to keep it. That's a word that sometimes is translated protect or guard. It is a protective purpose. So we have a productive purpose to cultivate it, and we have a protective purpose. And you might ask, protect from what? I mean, I thought we were talking about the Garden of Eden and everything in perfection. Protect it from what? I don't know if I have a great answer for that. Maybe Genesis chapter 3 clues us in to some things. But whatever it was, man is supposed to protect, to keep, to protect what has been entrusted to him by God in creation. And so again, I'm going to stop and ask you the same questions I asked you earlier. With man's God-given purpose to cultivate and to keep, what would that have looked like? If you play this out, what would it have looked like for man to cultivate the fruitfulness of the garden and of the earth? What would it have looked like for humans to protect that garden? And what might it have required for man to build or to create or to invent in order to cultivate the earth and to protect what God had given to him. Okay, 
So let's pause here and review a little bit and establish the view of human ingenuity and technology that comes from the description of man in the Garden of Eden. Again, this is man as God intended him to live, man and woman, uh, with his blueprint set before them in creation. What's the vision here? First thing we see is that man was made to submit to God's will, of course, but in submitting to God's will to rule over creation. In our words, ruling imply, or, or involved, cultivating and protecting. And then filling the earth, as we saw, filling the earth with God's glory. That was man's purpose from the beginning. We've also seen that humans are made in the image of God and therefore have ability, uh, intelligence, ingenuity that's been given to them by God and that sets them apart from the rest of the creatures that they are intended to then rule over. And we have, I think, uh, seen by implication that God intended man from the beginning to build and to create and to invent and to use that ingenuity that he was blessed with. And to use those things, use that technology, if you'll allow me to use that word, in a way that would serve creation and glorify God. That's the vision of ingenuity and technology from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, creation as God intended it in the Garden of Eden. Okay, how does this go? How does it work out? Well, you know what happens next. And so let's review a little bit if I know how to blank this out. There we go. Let's, uh, let's fast forward a little bit, although we will uh, want to talk more about Genesis chapter 3 and 4. But let's go through that, uh, try to do that a little bit quickly here. So in Genesis chapter 3, humans rebel against God. They were given this, this, this purpose, given this place, and they rebel against God. And of course, the humans eat the fruit that they were told not to eat. But we should see that it's really more than that, what's going on. That they are rebelling against God out of a distrust for God and a desire to be the rulers of themselves, as opposed to submitting to God. You may remember that, that Satan... His temptation of the, of the serpent is to say, God's holding out on you, okay? God is deceiving you. You're not going to die, and He doesn't want you to eat this because He doesn't want you to have the same power that He has. He doesn't want you to know what He knows. And so the humans buy into that, and the language of, uh, is important here. Remember, God had said back in Genesis chapter 1 that everything in creation was good. It was good. It was good. God's order was good, and yet... You may remember that, that Eve, in Genesis 3, sees the fruit and sees that it is good for food. So the humans are actually redefining what good is. And they are reaching out to take control of their own lives, to live lives on their own terms. And the consequence of this, of course, is catastrophic. They are removed from God's presence, they are removed from the garden, and they are cast off into a harsh and broken world. But I want you to notice in Genesis 3 and verse 23, that as they are cast out, they go out of the garden, it says, to cultivate the earth. And that tells us something. That tells us that even though man is now separated from God, even though man is now uh, separated from other humans, there is now distrust and brokenness in human relationships. Even though now the, the earth is going to have thorns and thistles and make it very hard to work. And even though now death 
looms over all of humanity. Even still, man retains the purpose that he was originally given by God. He's still made in God's image. He is still given the responsibility to cultivate the earth, still given the responsibility to protect the earth. But now those things are going to be much, much harder as he goes out to try to do that in a world that is broken by sin and corruption. Well, this rebellion in Genesis chapter 3 continues in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain murders his brother. That tells us something. Rebellion against God leads ultimately to the destruction of other humans made in God's image. But how Cain responds to this is interesting. In Genesis 4 and verse 14, part of the curse that is laid upon Cain after his murder of Abel is that God tells him he will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. But when you go down two verses later, it says that Cain goes out from the presence of the Lord, verse 16, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In verse 17, it says that he built a city. Now, settling in one land and building a city, does that sound to you like being a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth? You see how Cain is repeating the pattern here of rebelling against what God had instructed for him and the limitations that God had placed on him. And if you keep reading through some of this uh, flyover material in Genesis chapter 4 about the line and the descendants of Cain, I think you learn more uh, about the legacy of Cain on the earth. We come to a man named, uh, I'm now I'm uh, getting lost here, uh, Lamech in verse 19, who has two wives. So the first person to take two wives for himself, and he's not a good guy. Uh, if, if you needed that clarification. He's vengeful, according to the text, and harms and kills others who have harmed him. And then you come down to verse 20 and following of Genesis chapter 4, and you read some other interesting things about those from the line of Cain. It says in verse 20 that Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And as for Zillah, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. It is, as the text says here, from Cain's line that we have uh, the, the development of early technologies in the earth. Musical instruments, animal husbandry or agribusiness perhaps, and uh, metallurgy, maybe most nefarious uh, in the line of Tubal-Cain. Now we would ask, well, what, to what purpose are they putting this technology, the descendants of Cain? And we'll be fair, we're not told what purpose these, uh, these things are used for. But I think from the legacy of Cain, which is that of sin and rebellion, I think we could, we could pretty safely uh, imagine that these early technologies were used for man's purposes and for self-promotion and glorification rather than the glor glorifying of God. Okay, so then we move forward that sin continues until the days of Noah when God starts over. He floods the earth. But then even after Noah, sin repeats itself. And from Noah's sons on down, the world continues to fall more and more into sin. And we come then to Genesis chapter 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel that we want to spend a few minutes focusing on as well. Genesis chapter 11, and we'll read a few verses here beginning in verse 1. 
It says, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the Son of Men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, or Babylon, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth." Okay, so the humans are continuing east, like Cain, uh, and continuing in their rebellion against God. And they learn, in this text, a new form of technology. And this is a, one of those helpful reminders that technology is not simply iPhones or Apple Watches, but technology is anything that is created or invented to make life easier for humans or to be more productive. And this technology involves putting clay together and burning it to make a brick. And you can imagine, I mean, imagine going from a world of building everything with stone, that you have to find the exact stones that, that work for your building project and piecing those together, to a world where you can make your building material, make it the size you want and make everything the same, uh, you know, dimensions. And so they make bricks. Fantastic new technology. And what do they want to do with this technology? They want to build a city. We remember the city that Cain built. Maybe we see that this is a little bit of a dangerous project. But they want to build a city who's in a tower whose top is in heaven. I think that high tower is a picture of their ambition and their pride. Let us make a name for ourselves, they say. And this, again, is a sign of their ego and of glorifying themselves, but I think it's more than that as well. The language of let us make a name for ourselves seems to be about being in control of their own destiny. Okay. And we know this partly because in Genesis chapter 12, the very next chapter, God tells Abram, I am going to make you a great name. God is telling Abraham, I'm in control of your future, and I'm going to, to make it happen for you. I'm going to be the one in control of your destiny. But in Genesis chapter 11, the humans are saying, let us make a name for ourselves. We're going to control our own destiny. We are the architects of our own future. And they do this, the text says, lest we be scattered and fill the earth. So they're saying, we want to do this so we're not scattered and fill the earth? Well, what were humans always supposed to do? Scatter and fill the earth. They are directly opposing and rebelling against the instructions by God. Well, all this, of course, is laughable to God. God has to uh, come down. Do you see that kind of mentioned in the text? God comes down to even see the city, to see the tower that they are building. But he sees that this is not just a silly project. This is something that is seriously dangerous. He says, this is just the beginning this act of rebellion is only the start of what these humans will try to do. Things will only get worse 
and worse if humans are left to their own devices. And he says, nothing they purpose will be impossible for them. I used to think that God was just saying, you know, human, I can't let humans accomplish too much. You know, if they, if they do this, then they'll be able to do anything they want, and I can't let them, you know, do too much. Maybe some of that humility here, humbling them. But I think what he means is that the humans intend to do evil. And so they do this, they take the next step, there's going to be more wickedness, more violence, and more oppression. I mean, can you imagine? Even in our world, cities are usually where uh, violence and oppression uh, takes place in the most concentrated you know, spots. Can you imagine all of humanity living in one huge city all together? God knows that this is not going to have a good outcome. That there's going to be evil. There's going to be violence. There's going to be oppression. And so he wants to put an end to it. And so he does that, scattering them, fulfilling his purpose in spite of their own rebellion. And this city becomes the city of Babylon, which for the rest of the Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation, becomes the picture of human rebellion and the city that charms the whole earth with her sorcery and her seduction. And the city that God's people are called to get out of and flee unless they become corrupted by her. So we'll return to our picture here, our two pictures. And what would be the Babylon vision of technology? First thing we'll see, we see here in the story of Babel, is that the vision of Babel is that man is intelligent and capable without limitation. This idea of human potential, we can do whatever we set our minds to. We can achieve the impossible. Isn't that what modern technology is really all about? Achieving the impossible? Breaking through the, the barriers and doing things that before were unimaginable and doing things that we once thought impossible. But the scary thing, again, there's a pride element of that that is dangerous. You know, we can do anything we set our minds to. But I think more than that, what's dangerous and what's frightening is that in our world, under the Babylon vision, it is the possibility of doing something that becomes its own justification. This is the, uh, the Jurassic Park principle. Okay, there you go, Kevin. Ian Malcolm says in Jurassic Park, you were so busy thinking about if you could do it, you didn't stop to think if you should do it. But in our world, that's the way of thinking. If we can do it, then we should do it, or we will do it. We can figure out how to create life in a test tube. We can figure out how to travel to other planets. We can, and it has been done, at least on a banana, you can see the video on YouTube, perform surgery through robotics from halfway across the world. Anybody in here signing up for that? Anybody want, uh, want heart surgery from somebody in London using a robot here in Birmingham? I didn't think so. But this is, this is the way that the modern world thinks. If it can be done, we will do it, and nothing will be impossible for us. We have unlimited potential. In fact, for that reason, there's no need for God, and we are really better off seeking our own purposes. We are better off making a name for ourselves, creating our own destiny. We're better off being the architects of our own future. And that's what modern technology really is about. Modern technology is about creating the life that we want for ourselves. We still, in spite of the warnings of history and the warnings of many science fiction books and movies, we still think we can create a utopia on earth with just the right technology. We advance far enough, we can cure all diseases and solve world hunger and world peace and all these things. 
But these movies and books do a good job of reminding us that it's fool's gold and it, it, this prospect of utopia will only lead to disaster. But still, we think we can do it. Heaven on earth through technological innovation and scientific discovery. We're the masters of our future. It's our destiny and we will create it. And really all of this is about, or much of this, is about resisting the limitations put on us by God and brought on us as a consequence of sin. So, the three consequences of sin that we mentioned earlier. Broken human relationships. Okay, and the Tower of Babel, the scattering of people with different languages. Well, now we have the Internet. Internet really is the modern-day Tower of Babel that we can all come together and connect the whole earth. Have you seen some of those commercials where two people that speak totally different languages have a phone with Google Translate and they can just talk back and forth? I mean, through technology, we can reverse the Tower of Babel and we can bring people together. We live in a broken world, thorns and thistles, toil and hardship, but now we have pesticides and automated farming. And we're, you know, getting food from the earth is not hard anymore. In fact, at least in our world, our society, we have so much food all the time that we had to invent another technology, refrigerators, to keep that food from going bad. And even still, most of us are throwing out most of what's in our refrigerator every few weeks. So we've solved the problem of, of the broken world and the toil and hardship, and even death. Your Apple Watch will tell you when you're about to have a heart attack. Modern medicine will eventually conquer all sickness and all disease. And there's even a story about a guy, a journalist named James Vlahos, who before his dad died, he interviewed him and collected all of this data from him and created, after he died, a dad bot that he could chat with his dad, an artificial intelligence machine, continue to talk to his dad. Even eternal life is possible with the help of technology. But here's what, where I, what I want to ask. All these advances we've made, all the progress we've made towards heaven on earth with our technology, how's it going? How's it working out? We are more connected in the age of internet and social media than ever before. Are people closer? Do people have more fulfilling relationships? Is there more unity in our society because of social media and because of the internet? We have access to more information than ever before. You have a box in your pocket that can tell you the answer to any question you have, give you access to any information that's out there. Are people smarter? Are people wiser? Can people even find their way to the grocery store anymore without their phone? Are we smarter, are we wiser people because of the access we have to so much information? We have any kind of comfort, any kind of entertainment we want imaginable, any movie, any TV show. Are we happier people with all this amusement and entertainment? And we live longer. We face less pain, generally speaking. We have more treatments, can extend life farther. Are people now any less afraid of death? Does the curse of death hang any looser over people because we have all of these modern advances in medicine? No, you know well as well as I do that with all the promise of technology in Babylon, we have not made our world really all that much better, although I'm thankful for many of the modern conveniences and comforts. We have not solved the basic problem. And so we need to ask ourselves some questions, and I wish we had more than four minutes here, but uh, 
It's my, uh, what is it? I made my bed, I can sleep in it. This is not just about the world has a problem, everything out there is messed up. I need to ask myself some important questions. Do I operate under the, if I can, I will mentality? With new technologies that come out, with new capabilities that are available, I think most of us kind of just operate with this, oh, well, that's the latest device, that's the latest technology, so I'm going to do it. I can, it's, it's possible, so I'm going to use it without stopping to think. Well, I can do that. I can set up Amazon to do one-click purchase, but is that really the wisest thing? And so on and so forth. It doesn't mean that it's not the wisest thing in every case, but it means that just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Am I pursuing happiness in my tech and in my media? That's where I go to try to get fulfillment. And I actually don't think it's this as much as the next one. Am I using my devices? Am I using social media? Am I using TV shows and Netflix to escape from the hardships of the real world? And escaping into these fantasy worlds of media and social media in order to run from work, run from uh, problems in my own life? Does my use of technology isolate me like it babble, right? Uh, it's scattered people apart. And do I use tech ultimately to do what it is that I want to do? In some ways, the world has not changed. There's nothing new under the sun. We're still dealing with the same sins that Jesus and the apostles warned against in the first century. And yet it's so much easier to find these things now and to do these things now than it used to be. And so again, we have to be maybe even more on guard that these technologies are not simply becoming a way for us to do what we want to do, to live life according to our own lusts and our own desires. But the good news is that this can be redeemed in Christ. Real quickly, you just want to say like what's the most important point in all the Bible, which is that uh, the brokenness of sin and corruption and death, guess what? There's already an answer for that. God has already provided the solution. God has already provided in Jesus Christ a way to bring people together that have been separated by sin and brokenness and mistrust. That's the church and God's people. God has already provided a way for us to conquer death and the hope of being raised from the dead as Jesus was raised from the dead. The gospel has all of the solutions that technology pretends to have. And so even now, the technology that we have can be redeemed. And so we ask ourselves some of these questions. Am I using my device and submission to God? Am I using technology and media to bear fruit? I think about a passage like Galatians 5. You think about Adam cultivating fruit from the ground. Paul says cultivate love, joy, peace, so on and so forth. Am I using my tech and media to produce good fruit in myself? Am I protecting myself and my family? Our charge has always been to protect, to build walls, to guard against evil and against wickedness. Am I doing that, especially as it relates to technology? Am I using social media to be a blessing to other people? And ultimately, does my use of technology give glory and honor to God? Okay, two visions here, and I hope these visions have uh, made some sense. There's still, the QR code is still there. I'll check again uh, later this morning or this afternoon. If you want to put in a question, maybe we can address it. But come talk to me if you have any questions or thoughts about these things. And uh, we'll dismiss for a few minutes here. Thank you.